0: Thank you all very much for being here. So uh, coming over from Durham is not usually very hard, but today I was like having to avoid hydroplaning on. And so those of you who drove from Huntersville and Charlotte and others, I'm really grateful that you're here. Um, thanks for allowing me to be here from Duke. Uh, it's a little bit probably easier for me to be on campus than it would have been had the game this week turned out. <laughs> I was a little worried about that, but now I don't need to be too worried. So like, you know, you know, I mean that sort of licked my wounds and going. Uh, so, um, and it's really great to be here with you. So, I am. Uh, I have had the opportunity to to partner with the Study Center, especially with the talk last fall, and to speak to several hundred, mostly undergrads and grad students and community members over in the uh, Journalism School. And it was really a neat talk. And I've also known both from directly from Madison and also from lots of other people who have. Uh, Benefited and been blessed by the work of the Study Center here um, in lots of different ways. Really, since it got started, um, I was telling Allison my, my first time. I've almost never spent much time in this building. This will be by far the most time this morning that I've ever spent in Battle House. But I remember coming here very briefly when I was. Uh, I grew up in South Carolina, and I was a. Uh, I was looking at uh, UNC as a. As an undergraduate, and I briefly walked in, and when it was the Baptist Student Union building, some of you who probably went to Carolina may remember that, and, and uh, had a conversation with people here, and I remember that, and uh, and then you know it went on, and and now I'm like it's really neat to be back in a very different incarnation, a different kind of ministry, and um, and so I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Um, so we are a fairly small group this morning. This is not a group of four hundred, and even though I brought uh, for the first, I'll give two two talks this morning. One of which is uh, just us, uh, not students, and another of which I hope that many of your kids and maybe others will will come in and will join us. Um, so they have a little bit different emphases. Um, and the first, I, I did bring a PowerPoint, which is always a really like dangerous thing especially for a position to do because like you expect us to be sort of put to sleep by reading off slides and I'm not going to do that. Um, I did bring a PowerPoint because I wanted to show some images especially of some data around mental health on college campuses but I don't want the PowerPoint to uh, get in the way of conversation. So we're a pretty small group. I, it, it, I almost would prefer we be like in a, around the table together so that we could be kind of together discussing the issue in front of us and I think we have until, is it 930? Is that right? That, To total, is that right? Okay. Um, So, for the first talk, uh, I want to talk a little bit about mental health on college campuses. Then we'll break. And then, for the second talk this morning, I want to talk more broadly, again, to both uh, us and also those who might join us, uh, who are students, around questions of uh, shame. What is shame? And what does the gospel have to say to us as we all uh, engage shame in our own lives and see it enacted in our communities? And I, I hope that uh, those, these two talks will correspond to each other, even though I'll probably be more talking specifically about mental health data in this talk, and more, we'll focus more on scripture and on theology in the second talk. But it really the, the hope is thats that, is that there, we'll all be able to see some connections there and that we'll all learn together. So thank you for being here. Um, how many of you have, uh, how many of you are parents of current UNC students? Is, is that everyone? Okay, is there anyone who is not a parent of a current UNC student? And there's, <laughs> should, that's coming. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then, um, and then, how many of you of your students are undergraduates versus graduate students? Is everybody here in undergraduates okay. right now? Okay. Anybody? And anyone have have kids that are either at UNC or elsewhere in graduate school right now? Okay, so, good, so well, welcome, welcome here, so there's some, 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 some of that. Welcome here, um, and uh, so it's good to just know who I'm, I'm, I'm speaking with. So just to name my own uh, kind of uh, perspective and my own location in, this, uh, in this, this story. So I'm not currently a parent of a college student. I do have a daughter who just turned 13 and is in seventh grade, and so it doesn't seem that far along at this point. My wife and I are already kind of beginning to prepare for that, and I have a son who's eight, almost nine, And uh, so, I'm not here as a parent parent of a college student, Um, I'm also not here as a psychiatrist who directly treats college students in my work, so I'm not part of the student counseling center at Duke called CAPS, Um, but I do work as a professor both in the Divinity School at Duke and also in the Medical Center at Duke with a lot of both undergraduates and also graduate students and medical students and medical residents. Um, I'm in conversation with a lot of people, and and to be honest, I was really um, one of the biggest surprises for me around uh, when when I, I'll tell you a little bit more of my own trajectory, but when I finished my graduate work in theology and I started teaching classes in the Divinity School at Duke, how many, how much my psychiatric training and background was directly relevant to the kinds of conversations that I was having with students. And I found that um, that what I had thought would be a kind of sharp break between my clinical work as a psychiatrist at the Durham BA and my teaching at Duke University was actually not very different at all because people brought in very similar kinds of questions and issues. Um, so I do have I do have um, I have had a lot of conversations about what it means to be a college student nowadays. My primary context is at Duke because that's where I'm working, but I also have had contact with folks at UNC and elsewhere, and uh, and have a sense of what some of the challenges are and I have a lot to learn from you all because you have perspectives that I don't have about this so that's why I really want us to be in in conversation with each other um, you're here uh, just to name a little bit about what I've what I do and uh, what we're doing at Duke just so you're aware of it um, I um, my own training is that I I was in medical school at Harvard I came wanted to really understand more broadly what I was doing as a physician, how to make sense of medicine as a Christian, and so I ended up uh, coming to Duke Divinity School down the road for two years, between my third and fourth year of medical school. did a Master of Theological Studies there, went back and finished medical school, but then came back to this area for residency in psychiatry at Duke, um, and then ended up doing a doctorate in theology, which I wouldn't recommend to everyone, but that's that was kind of what I felt called to do because I wanted to be able to teaching work in a university context. And that's led, uh, for, in my case, and, and with several colleagues, to really being able to do really, really, for me, deeply engaging work um, at Duke, both in the Divinity School and in the Medical Center. Uh, so my current work, I'm a psychiatrist at the VA. That's my clinical work. I teach in the, in the Duke Psychiatry Residency Program, and that also involves teaching uh, medical students and other health profession students. And then half my time is at Duke Divinity School, where I co-direct an organization called The Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, um, which I uh, hope and think is is really beautifully complementary with the work the Christian Study Center is doing here. So we're an initiative based in Duke Divinity School, but really dedicated to helping open the resources of Christian faith, Christian theology, Christian practice to the world of healthcare, and then also to equipping the church and the church's pastors for confident and confident engagement with healthcare. So we see ourselves kind of at the at, a, at the, the the union between the church and the world of healthcare. And uh, one of the things that we do uh, at through uh, our theology, medicine, and culture initiative, we have conferences and we have meetings that any of you I know there's some physicians and healthcare providers in the in in this group um, would be really welcome to come to. We'll have a we have a um, uh, academic conference this March, and then we'll have a conference for clinicians in September. But we also invite uh, students who are either in medical school or other health uh, training programs or uh, students who are graduating from undergrad and are going into health professions or mid-career clinicians to come and study with us for a year or two to gain either a certificate or a degree in the Divinity School at Duke. We call that our Theology, Medicine and Culture Fellowship and it really has been, we're in our fourth year of that now and we're about to welcome our fifth um, cohort. And it's been incredibly beautiful Thing to see um, people who are really deeply hungry to understand what does it mean to faithfully inhabit the world of healthcare. What does it mean to really understand the Christian context of, of engaging healthcare? And these students come and they take classes. They're uh, together in a spiritual formation group. They're uh, learning and growing in community. They're building relationships with each other and with us. Um, and then they're doing practical work in the community. Uh, and then they're uh, and then they're going out and they're uh, and they're like embodying that in different ways, uh, both in training and also in their, in their clinical work and in their, in their world. So if any of you want to talk more about that program, um, I did bring some, uh, some brochures, and I see some in the back table there, which I'm so pleased are here, um, just if any of you have any questions about that program, or if you have um, friends or you know children of friends or your own, your own kids that might be interested in, in talking about that. Um, so with that said, uh, let, me, uh, let me just tell a story of a student that um, I met with this last year. I've changed a couple of identifying details, so there's no way that you could, anybody could recognize this, but this is pretty typical of several conversations I've had over the last year uh, in my work as a faculty member at Duke. Uh, Lucy emailed me in late February 2018 to ask if we might meet sometime. Sitting in my office about a week later, she explained that she was a freshman at Duke that a campus minister told her that I was a Christian professor and also a psychiatrist and had encouraged her to reach out to me. She told me that her time at Duke had been good in some ways, but also very hard. She was from a small town in Louisiana, had excelled academically at a Christian high school there. Her parents, both physicians in her community and immigrants to the U.S. from China, were proud when she was accepted to Duke, just as they'd been proud of her older sister, who's now at Harvard. She enrolled in pre-med courses, planning to become a pediatrician like her mother, and began attending meetings of a Christian fellowship on campus. She enjoyed her work, but quickly began to feel overwhelmed. She was not used to being in a place where it seemed like everyone had graduated at or near the top of their high school class. She felt like she didn't measure up. Others seemed to be smarter and also more socially competent than she was. She began to stay up very late at night to study, and still had trouble falling asleep. She found it difficult to focus and to concentrate. When she finished the fall semester with an A and three Bs, she felt intensely ashamed and worried that it would put her future as a physician in jeopardy. This semester, things have gotten worse. She's felt intense anxiety, especially about test taking, and continues not to sleep well. She told one of her friends in the Christian Fellowship about what was going on, and her friend recommended that she go to CAPS, the student counseling service, to ask about a medication for anxiety. She's reluctant to do this, but understanding that I can't treat her in my role as a faculty member, um, she asks what I, what I think about that. That has been a really typical conversation that I've had with undergraduates and graduate students uh, at, at Duke and, and elsewhere. And, uh, and so what, what, how do we make sense of that? Um, I want to do a few things today. Uh, I want to first of all just talk about what do we know, or what what, what do data show us about mental health among American college students now? Um, None of the data that I show will be UNC specific, but it will be, I think, representative of college populations very much like UNC. Um, How are colleges and universities responding? So what's happening here at Carolina and also elsewhere? Um, And then I want to briefly talk, and we'll, we'll mostly talk about this in the second talk, but what does Christian Faith have to offer? And how can parents be helpful? And in that last question, I need your help to help me answer that. So I have some I have some thoughts from my own context, but I welcome further conversation. So that's where we're headed in these next thirty to forty minutes. So a few things uh, a few things to note about uh, observations and trends among American college students. Uh, almost all the data that I show here is from well. I'll just say before that. Um, uh, every college and university in the country that I know of is struggling to meet demand for its mental health services and that's true here at Carolina so here's a, a, a article in the daily in the actually not the Daily Turtle in the out of the university um, you know public relations that talks about the creation of a task force on mental health that was created to meet a growing demand for services and especially in UNC's uh, student Mental Health Service, uh, and that I think is, um, it uh, may have reported out, I'm not sure what the final result of that was, but that was really a, a response to a felt demand and need here. Um, exact same kind of, of challenges are happening at Duke where, where the Student Mental Health Service has hired a number of uh, therapists and counselors and still can't easily meet demand, especially at peak times of the semester, and there's increasingly just worry about what that means for uh, how that affects student performance and And um, everybody's worried about student suicide and other things. So it's a very, it's a deeply felt need. And you see this on every level, trustees thinking about this, university administrators thinking about this, uh, those in student health services thinking about this, student organizations thinking about it. And so this is something that is kind of widely perceived. You, You hear talk about a crisis of mental health on college campuses. And I think that that is, I'll show you some data that I think that there's truth to that. So the question for us is, given that that's the case nationwide, it's not, just in, it's not, in, it's not something that's in any way limited to, to Carolina but it, or Duke, but it includes both of our institutions, then how does, how does the church respond? And how can, how can we respond as Christians? Um, almost all the data that I show will be out of this uh, uh, twice yearly survey of several tens of thousands of American college students run by the American College Health Association called the National College Health Assessment. And I'm I'm showing this data in part because it's publicly available. If you care, you can go online and you can easily find all the reported data. Um, And it's also something that is nationally representative. uh, Shows uh, mostly about the the cohort, the data that I'll show is from a mixed cohort of about 85% undergraduates and 15% graduate students in a variety of different institutions across the country ranging from large public universities to small private universities. Um, I know that Duke is a, is a participant in this survey. I don't know if Carolina is, but I, there's no reason to think that the data here aren't reflective of the kind of population that, that, that um, is here. So first of all, let's look, just look at some. And so this is like how undergraduates mostly and some graduate students respond when they're asked on an anonymous survey to respond to certain questions. So that's, that's the, the data that we have. Um, So first, just some things that you might wonder about in terms of how people are responding nowadays, and I'll try to back myself up so you can see the screen. Um, So first of all, what about substance use? And and I think there's some interesting things here that might help to either confirm or disconfirm perceptions of what's happening um, among college students. So if you ask uh, this cohort um, any use of substances in the last 30 days, um, the red is men and and the orange-yellow is women, Uh, 66% of of men and 50% of women say that they have used alcohol in the last 30 days. And I think that that is notable, that's a high number, but it also means that there's an awful lot of college students who haven't used alcohol in the last 30 days. And you see some smaller numbers for for marijuana, so around 20% of college students have used marijuana, but that means 80% (coughs) in the last 30 days have not. Um, Binge drinking, this is something that's often uh, really a, a subject of great concern. Um, again, when asked uh, a question of, of more than five drinks in one sitting in the past two weeks, uh, so this is active active use of what, by any standard, would be unhealthy uh, consumption of alcohol at one time. Thirty-eight percent of men and twenty-nine percent of women. So that means that a lot of this, a lot of a lot of the students who have used any alcohol in the last thirty days have had five or more drinks in the last two weeks. So it is kind of like, kind of a sharp uptick in terms of what we consider problematic use of alcohol. But this also means that there's a lot who are not binge drinking. So I want to, you know, not just be pessimistic. Um, this is just, if you wonder about non prescribed stimulants, this has gotten a lot of press recently about people borrowing their friends Adderall or Vivance to study. And that does happen, but it happens at fairly low rates. So 8% of men, 7% of women say that they've used a friend's substance. Uh, Used, used a stimulant that wasn't prescribed for enhancement in the last 12 months. So that could be an alarmingly high number or a reassuringly low number, depending on what you're worried about and what you think already might be happening. Um, but that's that's what the data show. Um, sexual behaviors. So this is also just um, it kind of may or may not help to confirm or disconfirm stereotypes. So here's. Uh, different forms of sexual behaviors that that uh, men and women say that they've engaged in in the last 30 days. Um, this is from spring 2017. These um, seem like pretty high numbers to me, um, but it also means that there's a lot of students who are not engaging in these various kinds of sexual behaviors, at least in the last 30 days prior to the survey. Um, but um, that is uh, what people say. And then, uh, the the not the flip side, but the the correlate of sexual behavior on college campuses is the question of unwanted sexual contact. And this, I think, is really important to be just aware of what's happening. And these, these, again, are this is one set of data points. There's other surveys that show even higher rates of unwanted sexual contact and sexual harassment, especially of college-age women. But you can see here, that in this national survey, 4% of men and 12% of women Say that in the previous twelve months they've been sexually touched without consent. One percent of men and five percent of women say that they've had sex, that sexual penetration has been attempted without consent, and one percent of men and three percent of women say that they have been sexually penetrated without consent. So, a, pop, a student body at the size of Carolina, which is like I don't know twenty-five thousand students or so, something like that total. That's an awful lot of people right now on this campus who are actively surviving uh, sexual violence and perpetrating sexual violence. And uh, and that this doesn't include those who carry histories of sexual abuse or previous sexual violence into college. So this is a, a huge thing and I try to, and I, I, I'm mindful of that in this room also that, you know, we in this room are not immune from sexual violence. Many of us here have, um, are survivors of trauma, and that is the case of any classroom, any Christian organization meeting, any fraternity and sorority, any, yeah, any group of university-age students is going to include people that have recently and not so recently survived sexual violence. And that, that's relevant, I think, to just what it means to be a college student. Now. now I want to show some data. These are these are kind of trends over the last ten years, which is when the same questions have been asked on the survey, so you can actually make meaningful across-year comparisons. Um, trends of what people are saying about their mental health. So the first couple here that I'll show are not clinical terms, but they are terms that might be just notable. So one of the questions on the survey is: Have you ever felt very lonely? And in the last 12 months, you can see a sort of modest, mostly consistent, but a modest uptick since about 2012 in uh, both men and women. Men are, are Women are on the top here, and men are on the bottom, the same colors, um, of those who have endorsed feeling lonely. And here's another, have you ever felt very sad? You can see here that there seems to be a kind of modest uptick in both men and women since about 2012 or so in terms of students who endorse feeling very sad, and these are really high numbers in the last 12 months, 73% of women and 58% of men say that they felt very sad. Um, I, it's not particularly unusual to feel very sad, you know, I mean, I've, I remember times when I was an undergraduate that I would have said I was lonely and said I was sad, so I would have been in that number. Um, but it also is important to notice that this is what people endorse, so there's a lot of, so you know, again, Think about the number of students here at Carolina right now, and this is, this is what people would say. Um, now we'll get into some terms that are more specifically related to kind of clinical language, the kind of language that I would use as a psychiatrist. Um, here's, here's one question. Have you ever felt so depressed that it was difficult to function? And again, in the last 12 months, uh, there's there's here there's a, a slightly kind of higher uptick, again kind of really starting in about 2010, but especially since 2012 where now, 45% of women and 34% of men say that in the last 12 months, they've at some point felt so depressed that it was difficult to function. And if you get further into this data, they actually ask like previous two weeks, previous 30 days, previous uh, month, previous 12 months, and and a, a lot of these actually would endorse this within the last two weeks. Um, here's another clinical term. Have you ever felt overwhelming anxiety? And here's the, here the, the, the curves begin to look a little bit sharper. Um, you, hear, you have to between 2009, you, you, you've seen from 53% in 2009 to now 69% of college women say that they felt overwhelming anxiety in the last 12 months. And that's a, there's a similar kind of up, uptick among college-age men, 49% said they felt overwhelming anxiety. Um, and, and this to me is probably the most alarming. Have you ever seriously considered suicide? Um, this doesn't mean everyone who considers suicide will attempt suicide. There's a lot of people who consider but do not attempt, but, but to me it's really remarkable that, that whereas in 2009, 2011, not that long ago, 6% of, of undergraduates and graduate students said yes to that question. Now, both men and women are not that different and now it's double that. 11 and 12% of students are saying that they've seriously considered suicide in the last 12 months. So that's one out of eight current university students as of spring 2018 are saying this. Here's some, here's some additional questions about treatment seeking and diagnosis. Um, this are also interesting just for the trends over time. Have you, have you been diagnosed or treated by a professional for anxiety in the last 12 months? Here in 2018, 26% of women and 12% of men said yes. And just note the, the rise in the, in the prevalence of, of students who endorse this in the last 12 months. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, from 13% in 2009 to 26% now. Again, this could be any, any. this doesn't mean current anxiety, but it could, it's just having been diagnosed or treated in the last 12 months. Um, here's a, here's a, a similar, slightly different shape of the curves, but diagnosed or treated by a professional for depression in the last 12 months. And here, especially among women, you see an increase over time, especially in the last five to six years. Um, here's another a different way of asking: Have you ever received psychological or mental health services from a counselor or therapist or psychologist? Um, again, kind of a modest increase recently, but 46% of women and 32% of men say yes. Uh, have you ever received that from a psychiatrist? It's pretty much is, is kind of flat over time. So, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's a psychiatrist? That, um, <laughs> Ever received uh, psychological or mental health services from your current college or university's counseling or health service? Uh, so you see an increased trend over time. This this, um, this may not seem like a, a great increase from 18 to 23%, but you can think of if you have 5% of your population in your campus that wasn't in any way in your mental health system before, and now they are, that's going to result in a pretty marked um, uptick in need and demand and wait times and that kind of thing. Um, and some colleges are experiencing even more than that. Um, here's another question that that was interesting have you ever received psychological mental health services from a minister priest rabbi or other clergy and the answer is no uptick at all and if anything a slight decrease but basically a flat line over the last 10 years so there are people who seek those services or those that kind of help um, I don't know how people exactly interpret that question terms of what counts as psychological mental health services but but that's interesting um, and then here's kind of a question about like attitudes toward help-seeking. So if in the future you were having a personal problem that was really bothering you, would you consider seeking help from a mental health professional? And here you can see already in 2009 there was pretty widespread acceptance of seeking help, uh, but it's increased, especially among men, but among women also, over the last um, over the last 10 years. So I would add just for any of you who care a lot about statistical um, uh, rigor. I didn't. I mean, I, I didn't. Ha- I didn't do like statistical uh, analyses to see whether these are significant. But I'm assuming that because the the, the data, the populations uh, surveyed were so huge. So the spring uh, survey has about 50 to 60,000 in each sample. That that these trends probably are not simply a result of chance, especially if we're trending over time. But I want to be clear about that. So that's kind of what we see. Um, and that's what Student Health Services are seeing, and that's what administrators are seeing, that's what professors are seeing, and that's what students themselves are seeing. Any responses to that, to that data? Because I want to talk now about how colleges are responding and how we can respond. <clears throat> any, any thoughts about that? I have one thought. I, I thought, you know, 2008, 2009 was a Great Recession. Yeah, yeah. more anxiety back at the beginning of those curves mm-hmm. as opposed to today where, financial situations in general are, are more stable, so uh, obviously there's not a positive correlation between the financial situation and the mental health situation. Yeah, and that's right. People have wondered about whether um, some of mental health and college campuses might be related to uncertain job prospects after graduation, and that combined with student debt, creates a lot of financial stress, which it clearly does. But the argument against that as the sole explanation is that, if anything, job uncertainty was worse in 2008 to 2012, and as students have a better chance of being employed now with a bachelor's degree, and uh, the the mental health numbers have gone in the opposite direction. I'm seeing a bunch of hands. Yes. I was going to say, in 2010, 2011, what did change was. uh, the uptick of social media, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter didn't even exist in and particularly for the girls, it gets yeah. more and more pressure each year to live up to what everyone else's life is looking like, and you know, that can't be a coincidence. Yes, yes, um, yes, absolutely. So that um, so there, there's a, a book that I brought, uh, some of you may know this, of this researcher, Jean Twenge. Um, this is a popular kind of airport book that she did. Uh, she's a psychologist that does research on generations, and she makes a very strong argument. This is the title of this book: is I, Jen, *Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood*. So that's what she <laughs> puts it out from here. But the main argument that she makes, and which I she's um, she, I mean, this is a popular book, but she she does you know good sort of large-scale social scientific demographic work, and she has a lot of different sort of points of correlation here to suggest that. That mental health parameters, and I'll show a slide from her book later on, but mental health outcomes, um, the, the, the inflection point for when you began to see um, more depression, more anxiety, more thoughts of suicide was about 2011, 2012 which was the first year of widespread smartphone adoption. Mm-hmm. And so, and so your your undergrads who are like you know were pretty much kind of Kind of basically came along right at the time when they were in middle school and early high school, right at the time when everybody got smartphones, okay. and so uh, so what Twingy argues is that is that the smartphone adoption is really the best, not the only explanation, but the best explanation among many for um, why the trends have gone so quickly in the in a bad direction, and it relates to um, the idea that that I mean there's and, there, and the question of house and I, I want to be careful not to just make this a talk against social media and smartphones because I think there's, there's faithful and unfaithful and good and bad consequences, but, but the observations are that uh, the social media tends to um, make people feel like they're connected but not in a way that actually leads to the kinds of connection that leads to healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. So not kind sort of striving together in person with a group of people to achieve something together, but rather uh, kind of Having connections that are based largely on projections of what people want each other to think and say, and there's also um, Madison just sent me an article this last week on social media has actually decreased our amount of time where we're able to be alone with our thoughts, able to be in solitude, and able to know what it means to be alone. And um, and also, social media has led to a lot of, of kind of comparisons of status and of of uh, who's in and who's out, and more feelings of being left out of social networks and and um, there's a lot of different things that are going on with social media use. The other, the other to me, compelling reason why uh, today's college students are experiencing especially more anxiety than was the case before is just because our culture is, so, the, the, the deep wounds of our culture are so close to the surface. So, so here on the Carolina campus in this last 18 months where there's been just a, a lot of emotion and a lot of thoughts about what to do with the Silent Sam statue, and undergraduates and graduate students feeling that very deeply, None of that is, I mean, it's not like this decade invented that stuff. That stuff has been with us for, you know, 400 years. But uh, it's closer to the surface now in a lot of people's attention than it has been before. And, and there's just a lot more ugliness in, in our social, um, in our ways of handling that culturally. And so when you get, when you, get you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, who are just kind of learning what it means to be adults in the world, and are kind of finding what it means to find their own way, and then and then social media is a big part of this, and they find themselves then swept into um, just um, a, a culture that ex- is exhibiting a lot of division and ugliness and outgrouping and that kind of thing. Then that that can't help. So th- th- those are that's my thoughts. That it's, it's social media is tied into that as well, but not it's not only social media, but it's social media is a kind of. There's also the way that that related to social media that, um, uh, you know, that, that, you know, I heard a a person say about a year ago who was talking about this. This person is kind of a radical activist in the in the um, Black Lives Matter movement, and also a psychologist, and she was just commenting on like like through Twitter, I know when the body is on the street, like you know, there's not even like there's this kind of ability to know things before they're filtered or reported. Um, before full knowledge is is even gained, when people are, and so that also, I think that that sort of immediacy of of availability, just what's broken, is um, is is something that I think is really hard in terms of in terms of mental health. So we can think about that. Yeah. So I'll say yes. I think there's lots of lots of lots of reasons to talk about that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. I'm just wondering about these are self-reported data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in your clinical or professional experience, do you believe that mental health, measurable mental health is actually problems are increasing, or do you think that people it's just become more acceptable to That's say a- that you have a mental health problem? I'm I'm a professor here on campus, and I never, I never had students telling me that, I mean, I had a student email me the other day and said, I'm sorry, I missed your office hours. She would schedule an appointment with me, and she said, but I had a mental health episode. So i nobody ever used to tell me that kind of stuff. And so, I'm just wondering. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question, and it actually was something I was about to say, that I think that this data is the result of two things. This is why I actually showed, initially, the. Data on these non-clinical terms like sadness and loneliness. So you see, if anything, flat to sort of slightly slight increases over the last 10 years. But then when you get to the clinical terms, like especially anxiety and depression, you see um, marked you see increased terms, and that that correlates with an increased willingness to uh, seek treatment. And so I think you have two things going on. You you definitely have uh, increased willingness to Frame human struggle and suffering in the clinical language of mental health, and to see it as mental health problems. And there's that I think is both. So as a mental as a psychiatrist, I, I see that as a mixed blessing. So on one hand, you have you have kids that are more willing to say, "I think it's good for me to be able to go to the student counseling service and to seek help." That I think is a generally a good thing. On the other hand, um, what that does is it is it takes. Um, these kind of non-clinical terms like sadness and depression and loneliness and makes them into something that are kind of medical issues that need treatment and that then kind of fit into the language of the medical model and sick role and so you can go to a professor and say I've had a, you know, I've had a mental health crisis and so I need to have my assignment changed or something like that. And I just think that that's that's neither all good or all bad, it's something that just is the case. So so part of what's happening is that among this generation there's an increased willingness to use clinical language to describe human struggle and suffering. Um, but also, I think you, that, that it's, it's hard to look at the state and say there's not also, um, I mean, there's no, there's no way to get past language to, to describe what it, I mean, there's no kind of index of suffering that goes past language that you can't, that, you, that doesn't get fit in a survey into, into the categories of language. But, but you do also see, again, modest increases in these non-clinical terms. And I think it's especially the data on suicide So even if um, students are more willing to seek help, the fact that twice as many students now are saying that they're considering suicide, relative to ten years ago, is a marker that um, something under that is not just willingness to seek treatment. Because if it was just willingness to seek treatment, you'd think that suicide rates or or um, thinking about suicide might actually be decreasing or staying flat. But there's also um, what seems to be more more suffering that we would then bring clinical language into. So I think it's both. I think it's it's more. It's, it's a rise in mental health problems and it's also a willingness to name problems that have always been there in the language of mental health Just speaking to the suicide thing it just seems like today's child or youth look at suicide more of an option like than our generations did like I don't know it just seems like it's on the table as more of one of an answer <coughs> to a problem than it used to be, you know. That's yeah that's a good question I, I don't know uh, the, the question is whether, whether suicide is now seen as more of an option, certainly it's social media has brought it more to the fore. Um, you know, so thirteen reasons why and other things have kind of made that made suicide something a part of, of. And there's more more um, publicity around celebrity suicides, deaths by suicide, and that's the case. I, I guess I just I think it's possible. I just don't know. Don't know the answer. It concerns me that more students are saying that they're considering it. You know. Yeah, I yeah. I um you know, I think a lot of it is what the movies like what they see on T V now, the accessibility to I mean, we sort of minimize human life, really, what's out there the culture does. But a part of me wonders like when we were growing up, I I mean I was just taught to muscle through. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't want to sound insensitive because i I'm, I'm very sensitive. Mm-hmm. But you know, you wonder like I don't want to enable my kids to be, it's just, I find it confusing, really, to know how to help them, because, you know, you do have to be, not necessarily have a thick skin, but you do have to show some strength, you know, I think, in the world today, but then, I don't know, it's, it is, you know, I don't don't know no it does make sense and I feel that as a parent of younger kids and I and I suspect that we all do like how do you I mean there, there's there's a there's, it's walking a tight, to my remember' walking a tight rope parenting is walking a tight rope between um, between um, not providing a kind of context in which um, various kinds of suffering can be named and experienced um, which so the 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 you know the the thing that you worry about is like the parent is always just like shut up don't cry you know stop you know stop complaining just you know you know just need to sort of you know just put all that aside and that that leads to not such great outcomes later on or on the other hand uh, parenting that's so attentive to um to minimizing risk that um that the child doesn't actually develop the capacity to feel like hey i can actually take risk and i can even get i can even experience what it means to to fail or to lose and, and, and that really stinks and the parents able to say, okay, you know, it's really important for that to happen and, and, that, and that to me seems to me a question of prudence. There's no, there's just no absolute rules of how we can do that well. I mean, I feel that with my 13-year-old daughter and I know you all feel that with your 20-year-olds as well in terms of how, how, that, how that works. I just want, I want to say that's a great question. Let me ask um, see. The other hand, since, um, since we're kind of approaching the end of this session, let me move forward with a few things, and then we'll kind of continue the conversation as both at the end here and also when we, when we go forward, that's all right. Um, so I'll kind of go fairly quickly. We don't need to say very much about this, but how are colleges and universities responding? Well, I think for the most part colleges and universities are kind of Freaking out about <laughs> this problem, um, in part because they're worried about liability. Um, so there's been a great increase, in most uh, most colleges that have the means have, have ramped up their student counseling and mental health services. They've often often implemented case management programs. So that, the I mean, one of the deepest fears of a college president is that something like what happened at Virginia Tech in 2007 will happen, where a student um, kills other students. And so Duke, for example, after that um, started a student wellness center and also student started a program called Duke REACH that basically provides like close tracking of students that have been identified as being, not necessarily high risk for violence, but a high risk for an adverse psychiatric outcome. So a lot of this is, a lot of colleges are responding not just to protect students, which they are, but also to protect themselves because they're worried about all the bad publicity and liability and lawsuits and that kind of thing that can come. So that just has to, that's just how institutions function. Um, there's also increased attempts at education, and alcohol, and substance use, and sexual violence. Um, I think that is, for the most part, a good thing, but it really depends on what kind of education and what the messages are being sent in that education are sent. Um, there's certainly more attention to rape and to sexual assault on college campuses than there used to be. And again, in terms of naming what's out there, I think that that is, is a good thing. And there's also a student wellness program. So Duke just built like about a $80 million student wellness center that involves these chairs that you can kind of, and they do a lot of interesting things. But it's interesting though that, they, that a lot of it kind of draws on kind of Zen, kind of mindfulness practices. Um, it's very focused on kind of looking to meditation practices as ways to increase wellness. and. And I want to think, okay, fine, like I'm not opposed to what they're doing, but like what is what does Christian community have to offer? Mm-hmm. What how can the church help? And how can an organization like the Christian Studies Center help? So we'll talk more about this in the second talk, but just to just to you know kind of just say, I do think that Christian faith has a lot to offer to these conversations that isn't named and isn't named even at universities that are nominally Christian. Um, one I think, and we'll talk more about the second 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 half, Christians have to offer a constructive vision humans are, that we the, the deepest truth about who we are or about who any student at UNC Chapel Hill is, is that we are known and loved by God, that we're created in God's image, that we're invited into the life of Jesus, and that is where to start, not anywhere else. Um, we have to offer Jesus, which is kind of sounds trite, but it, we have to start there. Um, Colossians 3, 3, 3-4, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What does it mean to see our lives inside Jesus' life? And how can that include the fact that Jesus is not just kind of a moral ideal to strive toward, but rather one who knows our struggles and our sufferings? Um, I think of the, uh, I think it's the second chapter of Mark, uh, where uh, Jesus was, you know, preaching in his hometown, and uh, the peop- It says that um, his his family said uh, he must be out of his mind, and so they went out to restrain him. And I think how interesting, <laughs> you know. So there's no evidence that Jesus had what we now consider mental illness or mental disorder, but he was misunderstood by those who knew him the longest and loved him the best they said, he's lost his mind, and they went out to restrain him. He knew what it meant to be on the outs and to be misunderstood. Then and in many other times in his earthly ministry and in the ultimate way on the cross. And so when we think about what it means to struggle with anxiety or depression or whether to use those kinds of languages or to be lonely or to be uh, misunderstood or to be in conflict with others, how can the life of Jesus be the life that we lean into, in which we're held? Um, and we have to offer community. So here's a picture that I pulled up the web from Battle House. But community is really deeply important. And here, here's a here's a, a, a table that shows up in Gene Twenge's book that I'm just you know swiping and presenting here for you. But I thought this is very interesting. This is this is among eighth graders in a in a, a a national survey called the Monitoring the Future Study that was done in 2013 to 2015. So what that means is that the eighth graders who were surveyed for this study are pretty much today's undergraduates, including your kids. Um, and, um, and and this was this was the relative risk of being unhappy. Uh, and you see here, so Twingy's main point here is that social media is correlated with being unhappy among eighth graders. And I highly doubt, I, I would suspect that would be moderated with time just as, you know, brains mature and we all kind of mature. But I think that, that those trends have, do continue when this is looked at in older uh, high schoolers especially. But then look at what's correlated with what's what's <coughs> correlated with having less risk of being unhappy. Well sports or exercise is in the, the lead. And then religious services is the second category that they look at. Followed by engagement with print media, followed by in-person social interaction. Homework and working turn out to be not currently unhappiness. It's all the electronic stuff that makes you more unhappy. But like the stuff that happens here in Battle House, in fact we're looking at the screen right now, like is is being in person with other people, even just on a purely secular ground, is is a way to combat the kind of disconnection, loneliness um, that students feel. So what's the weird thing at places like Duke? Because you have this beautiful campus, hundreds of millions of dollars spent to kind of bring people together. And the students are connecting in this kind of virtual, disembodied cyberspace reality with each other. And rather, what does it mean to actually be present physically with each other in a place like this, gathering around tables and games and Bible studies and other kinds of things? I think these are these are not like high-tech things, but they are really, really valuable. Um, we have to offer places and practices. So this is Aqueduct Conference Center, very near here, that I love. And, uh, and how can the church and churches, congregations, and also organizations like this, open up places like Battle House, but also open open up this kind of specific practices that we have to offer that the UNC administration, despite the fact that there may be faithful Christians within it, can't possibly do because it's constrained by the need for kind of a pluralistic, all you know Big Ten approach to mental health. But churches and organizations like this can come in very specifically and offer our Places and resources and practices, and we have scripture. uh, So I won't deal with this at all. But um, but you know the the lament psalms have been really deeply important to me personally, and also talking to students who are especially worried about like, am I letting down God by being depressed? Mm -hmm. You say, well, have you ever read Psalm (laughs) thirteen? Have you ever read Psalm eighty-eight? Have you ever read Psalm? You know, I mean, so we, we, we talk about this and leaning into Scripture, not just the Psalms, but Jeremiah and Lamentations and Job and the New Testament, the ways in which we can uh, lean more deeply into Scripture as ways to engage what it means to sometimes feel like you're disconnected and lonely and may not matter. And we have to offer hope. And I firmly believe that hope is not just a kind of psychological state that we summon, but it's, it's a communal activity that we do for each other. So Christian communities can uh, can hold each other in hope. Uh, groups of undergraduates can hold each other in hope. You know, uh, apartment mates can hold each other in hope. And the Christian story gives us a way to do that, even when there doesn't seem to be much else to summon. Um, so how can parents help? So I know that's kind of why we're, we're over here. So I'll I'll just read a list as we kind of finish, and then we can kind of continue in the second um, in the second talk to kind of talk about this more. Um, so here's a few things, and then I do think we need a break after this, and I apologize, but I'll be here and we can be engaged in, in smaller group conversation. Um, the first thing I would say is that acknowledge the grief that comes from change. Uh, there is no change in life, uh, no matter how much anticipated, that isn't accompanied by grief for something beautiful that's lost. That's the case with a marriage. It's the case with birth of a child, um, It's the, especially with the birth of a child. It's the case I think, with children going off to college that, you know, you may have wanted for your kids for all their lives for them to leave home and go to Carolina, and they may be loving life here, but there's some beautiful things that were lost when that happened. And you feel that, and your kids feel that too. But the culture doesn't allow you to say that because you're not supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to feel grief about leaving to go to college. But that's just part of the reality of human life. So acknowledge that. And also acknowledge what we as parents cannot control. Uh, So the literature talks about moving from caregiver to consultant. That's a kind of role transition for parents of college students. That you're increasingly not able to know every every place your child is at every moment in time. It's probably good actually (laughs) you don't know for them. Um, But a lot of Parents of college—I won't ask for Soviets, but a lot of a lot of parents of college students still like track their college students on the iPhone dots, you know, like so they can know exactly. And and that um, and that is um, that's a hard balance, to know, like what what to do with that. Um, At the same time, um, and and you know, know how to stay out of the way and let students fail. That's really hard. I say that as a parent. That's that's really hard to do. Um, But that can happen. But um, at the same time. You know, there are ways to fail that can be devastating, can have life-altering, devastating consequences, especially when it comes to sex and uh, drugs and other things. And so you have to then also be aware of like what, when to, when to really kind of raise the alarm and to get help. Because um, college is not just a playground, it's a place that lives can be destroyed as well as built up. Um, at the same time, know that your children care what you think. This is clear in the literature. Like high school, today's generation cares more about what their parents think than any previous generations have on national surveys. They may not always acknowledge that, but they still sort of need parents to be involved. Um, And so show interest and ask open and non-judgmental questions. I mean, just asking questions, keeping lines of communication open as much as possible. Um, Tell them that you love them, and make sure that they know that home is always a place where they are welcome and belong no matter what. Um, I think our college experiences, I say this is someone who's you know, roughly the same age cohort as a lot of you are, like is not the same as theirs was, even though parts of the UNC campus look just the same as when some of you were here at Carolina and you'd be like, oh, it's just the same place. It's not. The the, the, the world has changed in many ways, especially with regard to social media. And so <coughs> being aware of that, it's really important uh, in the literature that uh, you know college, one thing that happens in families when kids go to college is that a lot of parents get divorced and experience really significant marital stresses, especially when kids being home has been the main thing that's been keeping a marriage together. And so um, for all of us when our kids go to college, like it's really a time to work on the health of our marriages and our family lives. Um, and um, that's an investment in our kids as well as an investment in our own happiness as we you know, know what it means to... Parent college students and young adults rather than middle schoolers and high schoolers. Um, Encourage your kids to seek help when appropriate, Um, but don't shame or blame. So, you know, we'll talk about this in the second talk, but college students now are very sensitive to shame or being shamed. Um, This is, I think, social media has a lot to do with this. Um, But I think you can absolutely uh, just be, uh, say, like, you know, have you, wow, it sounds like this is really hard. Have you thought about talking to someone else? And sometimes knowing that parents are not pushing them to seek counseling, but allowing that, not feeling like parents are going to judge them negatively for seeing a therapist or a counselor or a psychiatrist can often be something that would say would allow people to say, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. And in my mind, like talking to someone, getting counsel is usually a better idea than keeping something bottled up and hidden, um, you know, and then you can figure out what to do with that. But, that's, but like, the more these issues can be spread around, that's, that's helpful. Um, clarify boundaries around communication. So, in the literature, a lot of a lot of people recommend like just being clear about like w- like how like you know as you know when when adults our age went to college, it was like how often would you visit and how often would you call. Now, these additional questions about like you know how much are you aware of what your kids are doing on Facebook? How are you tracking their physical location? Are you FaceTiming? Like how how and so a lot of college students have daily contact with parents, a lot of have, you know, some less than that. Just communication around that. Like what's needed, what does your child need, and what also do you need around that? And then I think pray for them and let them know that you're doing so. And do that faithfully. And that counts for a lot, both because prayer is powerful and effective, but also because there's something about knowing that your family is um, holding you in prayer and it's sticking with you no matter what, that um, counts for a lot in terms of knowing that you are loved and belong. And that's part of what we can do with each other as Christians. So that's the end of our first talk, and I've gone over, and I apologize for that. Um, So we won't have any more group conversation now, but I look forward to kind of continuing conversation with the group when we gather. All right? Thanks so much. Thank you. So um, 10-minute break. We'll start back at 10.45.